Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, this week we're going to be taking a closer look at the Getting Down to Facts Research Project. It's a major collection of research studies that came out this week. And we'll be talking with Susanna Loeb, who headed the project, and Jesse Levin from the American Institutes for Research. He did a key study on what it would cost to provide an adequate education to all California students. But John, before we go to them, just fill us in. Why should we be paying attention to these studies, or should we? So these studies, which were two years in the making, will provide sort of the information and the research base for the next governor and the next superintendent of public instruction who will be wanting to set their own agenda. And these studies point to a lot of areas that need improvement, certainly, and we'll be talking about that, such as early education expansion is one. But one message for the governor who may want to charge ahead in a new direction is don't. In surveys that were part of the studies, teachers, superintendents, and principals who have been sort of whipsawed in the past by reforms, they're saying, we like the new academic standards, such as the uh, Next Generation Science Standards and Common Core. We like the new approach to school improvement, which is measuring more than test scores, and a funding system that steers more money to low-income children and English learners. So their message is improve what we have. Don't start over again. Well, why don't we listen now to Susanna Loeb, who was a longtime professor of education at Stanford just until a few weeks ago. And she headed this Getting Down to Facts set of studies, and she did the same thing 10 years ago with the so-called Getting Down to Facts 1 studies. Susanna has left California. She's now director of the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University. Susanna, glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us, and I know it's very hard to summarize 36 studies, but what were some of the major areas of improvement that you identified, and not you, but many other researchers, both in California and around the country? I think we can break that into two different areas. One would be that the last 10 years have seen a whole bunch of reforms, and a lot of what's happened has actually been good for the state, but it needs some kind of continued focus in order to really fulfill its promise. So there are those kinds of improvements that are needed. And then there's some areas that haven't really been touched that also could use help. If you look at the school finance system, the local control funding formula really made a lot of the regular operating expenditures for schools much clearer than it was before. It was very confused and hard to understand. So that was a step forward, but it didn't address issues of special education funding, and it didn't address issues of pensions. And both of those are really difficult for local districts and really can present some problems for the state. And by pensions, you mean the pension costs for teachers and all school personnel. Is that correct? That is correct. So the idea is that the districts put money and the state and the teachers put money in a fund for current teachers that should pay them for their retirement, their pensions for retirement in the long run. But in the past, California has not invested enough to actually pay for those 
retirements. And so now we're having to pay for the retirements of teachers who taught many years ago and who are no longer teaching. And so some of the funds going into districts now, in addition to going to current teachers and to curriculum and all of that, are going to teachers who were teaching in the past. And the pension system ideally wasn't set up that way. So there's a whole bunch of debt in there that's pulling money away from current expenditures in schools. And some of what you found, the study that I read, there's some frightening figures in there. I mean, pretty soon that these pension costs are going to be equivalent to one third of the amount of money that we currently spend on teachers. So these are these are big costs to districts and really do need to be addressed. This isn't one district having this problem. This is a state level problem. And what else, Susanna, did you find in other areas? So outside of just the finance, one area that we haven't invested in, either in terms of funding or really in terms of just uh, working on quality, is early childhood education. So we found big achievement gaps in California, bigger on average than the rest of the state. And much of those achievement gaps start before kids enter school, yet California doesn't have the quality early education system that many other states do. And so it's not just a question of how many kids are being reached, but there's the quality issue. Is that what the research has identified? Yes, that's right. So one is the low access, that there's just not enough spots for people in in preschool, but the other is quality. Some of the wages that are paid to preschool and early childhood educators are so low that that something like 50% or more of them are on some kind of public assistance as well. So they're very, very low salaries. And in addition to that, California is invested in a system to describe the quality of the preschool programs that are out there, but the preschools don't have to be part of that system and aren't actually rewarded for quality the way they are in other states. In other states, the amount of funds they get from the state depends on the quality of program they're providing, but that's not true in California. So there are kind of a range of ways that we could improve the quality as well as the access to early childhood care. Another area was data, was it not, uh, Susanna? A feeling that there's not enough good data systems that connect early childhood through college and also access issues as well? That's right. So if there was a silver bullet and we just knew exactly what it would take to make the perfect system, then issues of information and data wouldn't be so important. But as it is, we really have to create a system that just gets better over time, that learns how to do what it wants to do better, not only because we have ambitious goals, which we do, but over time those goals are going to change and the needs are going to change and we really need to know what's going on. And California hasn't been nearly as good as, as other states have in collecting data that can be used to understand where the needs are and what the opportunities are and what's working and what isn't working. And they've made some progress over the last 10 years in terms of having some data where you can actually follow kids over time, but it doesn't bring in information on the programs that the students have access to. And it's also really hard to access the data on a regular basis. Well, that relates to the issue of how are districts and schools going to improve? And there were a number of studies that that looked at the state system of support and guidance, and it 
several of the studies expressed concern whether the agencies whose job it is to do that, the Department of Education, the new California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, as well as the county offices, whether they really have the ability to do what's needed, that seemed to come through. That's correct. So California has decided to use a really decentralized approach to improvement where districts have a lot of control over what they do with their funds, on how they create professional opportunities for teachers to learn about the new standards and how to teach them well. And there are lots of benefits to that because local areas know the opportunities they have and they can really respond quickly. Some areas are taking that up and then some schools and some districts really know what they're doing. And then the county offices of education are there and they've been helpful for some districts. But the issue is that California has a thousand districts and not all are able to respond to this. Not all have the capacity to use their flexibility in resources well. And so it is important for California to have these kinds of supports. And right now, the supports that are out there are not sufficient to deal with the places and to support the places that didn't have that initial capacity. So I do think that additional investments in this kind of support system are important in moving forward and really making use of the new reforms. We're talking with Susanna Loeb, who is director of the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University and was at Stanford until just a few weeks ago. Is that correct, Susanna? That is correct. So Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who seems likely to be the next governor, barring some political or other catastrophe, he has put forward this notion of a cradle-to-career education system. Don't the findings of getting down to facts kind of match that kind of vision? Although you guys didn't deal with higher ed, but certainly looking at early ed. Yes, uh, I think, you know, the the idea of cradle to career is, is a really good one. It clearly brings the focus to some of the things we've been talking about with early childhood education and also with the alignment between the K through 12 system and higher education. We did have some focus on that and there has been some progress but I, I think viewing education as something that starts when children are very young and their brain is developing, but then goes through those opportunities to move into careers and developing the kinds of skills that they need for successful adult life is very important. So it's a good perspective. So you're researchers and university professors, and you're not political leaders. What happens now? You've got all these studies that came out. And where to from here, and how do you hope the messages will be carried, and where will the impact be? The next step, I think, and we've been trying to think about how how we can push this forward as well, is to make this data available in the form that is most useful for the people who are going to push this forward. So as a result, we have some very short summaries. We have then for those who go into the short summaries but want more detail, we have more detail. And we've really tried to provide that and also to make connections with groups that would take the next step to move it forward and be part of the advocacy and development process that that takes even if the researchers themselves are not part of that process. 
Susanna Loeb, you're now outside of California. Do you know of any other state that has done this kind of level of comprehensive research on so many different aspects of its education system? I think, of course, I may not be completely neutral on this, but I actually think we're standing out on this in this regard, and we should. We have more students by far than other states do. We have a very important group of students in that uh, many come into the school as English language learners. We're a super diverse state in so many dimensions. So I think this is the right place to do this kind of an intense look at what's been happening. Well, it's nice to see, even though you're three time zones away, you're still referring to it as we. I think I will be doing that forever. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That was Susanna Loeb, who is director of the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University and who coordinated the Getting Down to Facts project. And John, you also spoke with Jesse Levin. He is a principal research economist at the American Institutes for Research about his study looking at what it would cost to provide an education for all California students so they could meet the ambitious goals that the state has set for its students. John, there were many researchers. Why did you want to talk to Jesse? We know there's a general consensus, not unanimous by any means, that California needs to spend more money on its kids in schools. So the question is how much and how would you spend it? So Jesse led an adequacy study in the first Getting Down the Facts project using the same approach, which is to gather panels of experienced teachers, principals, superintendents, specialists in English learners and special education, and said based on the state academic standards and the goals that the State Board of Education has set, how much money would it cost to produce students who are proficient in these standards and also ready for college and careers after high school. This approach is known in the trade as a professional judgment panel. And so we asked Jesse, what did these panels come up with? So we found that in order to provide an adequate education to all students across the state, we would have to spend considerably more. Specifically, we calculated that it would be about $22.1 billion in additional spending that would have to be distributed across our districts in order to provide an adequate education to, to all students. Does that mean that's, for example, we, we have a formula that gives more money for low-income students. In designing this program, you recognize that low-income students and English learners would need more resources or more teachers, or what did this panel come up with? The results of the analysis that were based on the panel, the, the data the panel provided, suggests that there would have to be additional funding adjustments for students that were socioeconomically disadvantaged special education, and English learners. And when I say additional, the funding adjustment weights would have to be more aggressive than what we currently have in the LCFF. So even though we have the local control funding formula, which is recognized as being equitable, you would have to actually increase the weights, perhaps, for low-income students and bring in students with disabilities in order to achieve the level of basically equal opportunity and Proficiency? Our results are suggestive of that, yes. For instance, our results suggest that a weight for socioeconomically disadvantaged students would be larger than what's currently in the LCFF. We're speaking with Jesse Levin, 
who is the principal research economist with the American Institutes for Research on his important study on financing schools adequately. So you mentioned that we spend right now about $69 billion, and therefore we would need $22 billion more. Is that right? That's true. So on top of what we're currently spending, we would have to spend about $22.1 billion more. However, that is statewide. The differential in what it would take to fund an adequate education and what's currently being spent varies across districts. That's 32% more spending, but it would vary, as you just said, not 32% in every district, right? No. So what we really found is that those districts with higher incidences of students from low-income families and those districts that tended to be more rural have gaps. That is a difference between what we projected had to be spent to provide an adequate education and what they were currently spending. Did this take into consideration preschool and quality child care that may be necessary for low-income students? The models that the professional judgment panels took charge of did include the provision of programming for both kindergarten and transitional kindergarten programs. And, and regional costs, did it take in that into consideration that it's more expensive in the Bay areas and perhaps rural areas too. Our analysis did. It employed an adjustment for geographic variations in the costs of hiring and retaining staff. So break this down, if you will, to per student spending. Well, in terms of per student spending, on average, we would have to spend about $16,800 per pupil statewide in order to provide an adequate education. You put that in perspective to what other states are spending. So $22.1 billion may seem like a lot, but in the context of what other states are spending, it's truly just reflective of how little California is dedicating to public education relative to these other states we purportedly are competing with. For instance, in our report, we bring forth numbers from other states such as Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York that show that our adequacy cost projections are actually less than what they are currently spending. But at the same time, you're talking about future spending. There are additional costs as well that did you consider the impact of, say, pension costs? Pension costs, as we know, have been rising in terms of the burden being placed on public school districts. In that context, you can interpret our findings as possibly a lower bound estimate of what it would cost to provide educational adequacy. Now, you're an old hand at adequacy studies, Jesse. In fact, you led the 2007, the first getting down to facts adequacy study, which also used this professional judgment method. Tell us, how does this compare with that first study? There were actually a few different adequacy studies done for the original getting down to facts, of which I was involved in, in one. For that study, we had a range of adequacy estimates, which said that we would have to spend between 40 and 70% more. Another study that was done at the same time by John Sonstely at UC Santa Barbara came up with an estimate saying that we would have to spend at least 40% more. So now we've got an estimate of about 32%. The difference could be attributed to them being different studies. That is the goal statement we talked about earlier was different. Back in those days, we had the API. Our accountability system now is based on different standards. Also, we should recognize that over time, we may have been gaining some ground on funding. So of all the numbers and percentages we've heard, what's the takeaway, Jesse, that you would want folks to remember? I think the takeaway here is that 
we have to put our energy into a solid discussion of what it's going to take to provide an adequate education for all of our students, and how are we going to fund that? Well, thank you, Jesse. We enjoyed talking to you and look for the more discussion as this study gets circulated. Thanks so much. That was Jesse Levin, an economist at the American Institutes for Research who did one of the 36 studies as part of the Getting Down to Facts project. Yeah, it was an impressive study, and certainly anytime you bring up money, it will be discussed and focused on. John, I just have to ask you, I mean, the state is already spending 40% plus or minus of the general fund on K-12 education. That doesn't include all the money they're spending on pre-K. Is it realistic that the state, and by that I mean the politicians and the new governor, will be able to come up with more money, anything remotely approximating that amount? Well, I think this translates it into a different language, which says, here are your standards. This is what you expect. This is the gap that we find reasonably but that you need to do in order to achieve what you say you want to achieve. And therefore, whether it's early education or whether it's career technical education or English learners or more teachers, that has to be decided by the legislature. But here are your needs, and then you've got to come up with the priorities. The funny thing is the legislature almost passed a bill. It died in the Senate on the last day, which said, here's our next goal for the local control funding formula. Do you know how much that was? $35 billion. That's $13 billion more than the 22 that the panel of educators came up with, which is a bit ironic. So this is what at least they said we need to do. They didn't say how, but they said this is what we should do. Yes, but even though the, the legislators who passed that had no idea where the money would come from. And then, of course, there's the big question of how you spend the money. As you know, there's been a huge debate, a lot of research over many decades as to what difference money makes. It doesn't mean you just spend money and there's an automatic improvement in student outcomes. Well, at least in this case, they asked educators and experienced educators, and they didn't say come up with a wish list. They said, here's your goal. This is what the state expects. Come up with basically an efficient and minimal, it says minimal amount to achieve that adequacy. At least that's a professional judgment. The legislature, when they came up with $35 billion, they were just saying, well, what does it take to reach the top 10 states? Okay, that's the, not... You mean the amount that the top 10 states spend? Per student. Exactly. It wasn't based on anything particularly needs in the classroom. That's as arbitrary and abstract as one can find, at least here. These are professional judgments of educators who educate your kids. Now get a different panel. They would come up with different estimates, but at least here's something to look at and discuss. Well, hopefully the Getting Down to Facts studies will give districts, if they do get more money, some clear guidance on where they should put the money. But I do have one other concern about these studies, and that's that there was a decision made to release all of the studies at the same time. And I have a real concern that these studies will get buried. I mean, there really needs to be a strategy to keep these studies and the results on the radar, not only of educators, but also of the decision makers and policy makers. Otherwise, it just won't have the kind of impact that's needed. Well, these are researchers. They're not uh, political leaders. And it wasn't commissioned, per se, by the legislature or a governor. This is the research that they found, and I, it's unclear what happens next. In the report, it talks about early education, and it talks about the need for data. These have not been the key priorities of the current administration, the governor. And so they're saying to the next governor, you need to address these as well. And I think this may have some legs in the next administration. 
seems almost certain that Gavin Newsom will be the next governor, and he has put out this concept, the organizing principle of his education agenda is a cradle-to-career education system. He is completely committed to early education, so I think we can see more money in the pre-K and even the zero to three years, and even, according to Gavin Newsom, the prenatal period to give help to expectant mothers. But again, the question is where the money will come from, and also given the fact that we are expecting a recession at any point. Almost seems certain it's going to happen during the next, at least during the next two terms of the next governor, should he be reelected. Governor Brown couldn't have said it better, Lewis. <laughs> well, that's the first time I've been accused of channeling Governor Brown, but I'll take it. Well, one thing we know is EdSource will continue to cover getting down the facts and keep it in the public eye. Uh, next week, we'll be publishing a piece looking at Gavin Newsom's cradle to career concept and how practical that is as a strategy in California. And if readers want a summary of what's in Getting Down the Facts, we produced an infographic this week that goes through each study and gives the main points. So that's a good place to start. And those can be found at edsource.org. And for the policy wonks out there, I don't know a number of you are listening, you can read the actual studies and briefs to go along with the studies at gettingdowntofacts.com. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. You can find us on iTunes and at edsource.org podcast. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.